Father, you are our great almighty creator and God and you are the one that has loved us with an everlasting love. And we want to, Lord, understand more completely your love today. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord, that we would be able to meditate deeply on the love of our gracious God. We pray that it would become more clear to us, Lord, and that the love of God would affect us more deeply and intensely in our life. Lord, to the effect that we would love you back, that we would, as a result, want to just love you. So, Lord, come and minister your truth to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sunday morning, we were continuing in our study on the attributes of God or the perfections of God, and we were studying the jealousy of God. And I thought a great follow-up to the jealousy of God would be a message on the love of God. Because a husband and a wife are only jealous if they love their spouse and they are zealous to preserve that marriage covenant. And they see a threat that has the potential to split that marriage covenant so they become jealous and they make sure that nothing attacks their marriage. And so God is jealous, but his jealousy stems from his great love towards us. In fact, 1 John 4.8 and 1 John 4.16 say that God is love. Now, it doesn't say that God is loving, and it doesn't say that God loves. It says that God is love. And so love is not what God does. Essentially, love is who God is. God is love. And this is a truth that everybody in the world seems to know, right? All unbelievers seem to understand that God is love because when you start telling them about eternity, and the fact that all men will spend eternity in heaven or hell, they're very quick to say, well, how could a good and loving God send anybody to hell? As though that thought was ludicrous, or it was inconceivable that a good and loving God could do that. So, it is true, it's wonderfully true that God is love, but it's not true that that's all that God is. God is not just love. God is also many other things. God is holy. God is righteous, God is just, God is wrathful, and all of his attributes have to be seen in sync with one another, not in contradiction with each other. When we so blow up one of God's attributes that we ignore something else, we have a lopsided view of God, and we, it's a distorted view of God. In other words, the world tends to completely ignore the idea that God is wrathful, just, and holy, but they blow up the idea that God is love, and so they have this distorted picture of who they think God is, which isn't accurate anymore. It's, it's not in relationship to his other attributes. So let's begin this morning just with a working definition of the love of God. This is my working definition. The love of God is that which moves God to freely and selflessly give himself to others for their good. I'll repeat that. It's that which moves God to freely and selflessly give himself to others for their good. And this attribute of God is an essential part of God's very nature. God is love. He has always been love. He always will be love. So God is continually uh, being moved to freely and selflessly give himself to others for their good. So... What I'd like to do this morning is look at seven different aspects of the love of God in the Bible. 
you can you might think of this as viewing the same panorama from seven different windows as you move around and you're looking through these prisms and you see a different perspective on the same thing but it's all talking about the love of God so the very first thing I want us to think about this morning is this the first aspect the love of God is uncaused the love of God is uncaused and what I mean by that is that there was nothing inside of us to attract this love or to cause God to love us we didn't merit or deserve God's love so if God loves us it has nothing to do with you and me somehow making ourselves worthy of his love how often have you heard of people who think that they've got to somehow become worthy of God's love they, they won't come to Christ until they feel like they're worthy of him loving them and they've got everything backwards because God doesn't love because we're worthy of it if he only chose people to love that were worthy of his love there wouldn't be anybody for him to love because nobody's worthy of it God loves unworthy people God's love is free it's sovereign and it's gracious so how do we know this let me see if I can back up what I've just said from scripture let's look at the Old Testament and let's look at God's love for the nation of Israel first of all and this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 7 and 8 so it's Deuteronomy chapter 7 starting in verse 7 the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt now the couple of things I want you to notice and consider from this text number one there is a parallel idea here there, there's two synonyms taking place at the very beginning of verse 7 it says the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you and what the Bible is doing there is helping us to understand what it means for God to set his love on someone it's the same thing as him choosing them those two ideas are coupled together when God chooses someone he sets his love on them when God sets his love on them he has chosen them those two ideas are synonymous together and we're going to talk more about that later in our message but I just want you to notice that from this text the second thing I want you to notice is why God set his love on Israel did you notice the reason God gives well first of all what was the what was not the reason that God set his love on them he says it wasn't because you were more in number than all of the other nations because you were the fewest of all the other nations so God didn't set his love on Israel because they were so great and mighty and powerful and they were bigger and mightier than all the other nations as though there was something in them to attract God's love he says no that's not why I loved you then why did God love them the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but because the Lord loved you you say wait a minute doesn't make any sense that's not a reason the Lord loved you because the Lord loved you that's what God says I loved you because I loved you in other words I I don't have a reason that you can understand for this answer I loved you because I loved you well there is one other thing and I swore to your forefathers to keep this covenant that I made with them so I made an oath to your forefathers I'm gonna keep the oath that's why I loved you 
And also I loved you just because I loved you. Notice God doesn't say I loved you because you were so great and mighty. Because you were so holy and righteous. Because you were special and different from all the other nations. And so I loved you. There was nothing in Israel to attract God to love them. The reason God loved them came from within himself. I loved you because I loved you and I made an oath to your fathers. So that's what we find in the Old Testament when God says why he loved Israel. Now, let's move over to the New Testament and let's see why God loves his church. And so we need to go to Ephesians chapter 2 for this one. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 5. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Okay. Verse 4 talks about God's great love with which he loved us. Notice who God had this great love towards. Verses 1 to 3. People that were dead in their sins people that were under the dominion of this world, they were under the dominion of the devil, the prince of the power of the air, they were under the dominion of their flesh, they were living according to the lusts of their flesh, and by nature they were children of wrath. So let's just line all these things up that Paul says. Dead in sins, under the dominion of the world, under the dominion of the devil, under the dominion of their flesh or their sin, and they were children of wrath. God's wrath need, needed to be poured out upon them because of their sinful rebellion to him. So that's the condition of the people that, that God loves in verses 4 and 5. He says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy... So why was God rich in mercy towards these people? Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. So here's the point. God didn't look down and try to find some worthy people to love. He found the most unworthy people to love, and he chose to love them. He chose to set his love on them. He chose to grant them his rich mercy. And notice this isn't just ordinary love. Paul describes it as his great love. Great love. And we're going to see that there is an ordinary kind of love in Scripture, and then there's this kind, this great love that God exercises towards those he, he saves. There was no earthly reason for God's love. But I think he chooses the phrase great love because God's love lifts us from the deepest pit and exalts us to the highest heaven. It's great we also find in 1 John 4.19 that John gives us this expression. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Now many people want to flip that around and they want to make it say this. He loves us because we first loved him. But that's exactly opposite of what the Bible says. No, God doesn't love us because we first loved him. We love him because he first loved us. God is always the one who takes the initiative in the relationship. 
It's not like he's responding to us. You know, we're seeking after God with all of our heart, and now finally he turns a deaf ear and he says, oh, okay, I guess I can enter into a relationship with you. No, God is pursuing us. He's pursuing us. He's pursuing us. And finally, he gets our attention and turns us around and enters into covenant with us. But he's the initiator. The truth was, not that we loved God, but that we loved ourselves. We loved the world. We loved our flesh. And even though Christ was altogether lovely in our fallenness, we didn't love Jesus Christ. Yet we are altogether unlovely, and the Lord set his love on us. It's completely backward from the way that the world tries to paint this picture. There was nothing to attract God's love in us and everything to repel it because the Bible teaches us that we were depraved, guilty, polluted, and dead. So the reason that God loves us can only be found within himself. You can't look within yourself to find it. You've got to look within the nature and the heart and the character of Almighty God. Now, you and I often love other people because of what they do for us or how they make us feel, right? If someone makes us feel good about ourselves or they serve us, well, then naturally we were inclined to want to love that person. But we weren't serving God and we didn't make God feel real good about how we lived in obedience to him. It was completely the opposite. And in spite of that, God loved us. So God's love is not because of us, it's in spite of us. It's a whole different kind of love than the world knows. So that's the first facet of God's love, what we need to understand. The love of God is uncaused. It's unsought. Okay, secondly, the love of God is eternal. And we need to go back to Jeremiah 31.3, our opening scripture this morning, and meditate on that. But ask yourself the question, when did God love us? When did God begin to love us? Was it when we repented? Was it when we put our faith in Jesus Christ that God began to love us? No, not at all. Was it when we began to worship him? And we began to serve him? No, it happened way, way before that. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. So God's love stems from everlasting. God stems from everlasting, doesn't he? God has no beginning, and because God is love, and he has always been love, his love towards his people has flown from him from everlasting. Remember Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. It says, Just as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now notice the two verbs in this section of scripture. The two verbs are chose and predestined. Just as he chose us, and it says, in love he predestined us. So those two verbs help us to understand one another. Now, what's the time indicator in this text? When did God choose and predestine those? It says, before the foundation of the world. What motivated God to predestine us to adoption as sons? What does the text say? 
It says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. That's what the Bible says. God was motivated by love to predestine you to be adopted as his child, to bring you into his kingdom, to lavish his love and his grace upon you. It was God's love that caused this predestined purpose to include you from before the foundation of the world. So in other words, God lo God's love flows from eternity past and it's an essential aspect of his character and nature. So there we have the facet of the love of God, it's eternal. It's uncaused and it's eternal. And the third aspect of God's love is that it's sacrificial. Interestingly, most of the time when you come to the New Testament and you read about the love of God in the New Testament, and test me on this, get your concordance out, and look up all the verses about God's love. Most of the time in the New Testament, the love of Jesus Christ or the love of God is connected to the cross. It's connected very vitally. I'm just going to read you a bunch of passages. and Just, just listen carefully. Of course, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Of course, he's talking about giving him up to death. Ephesians 5.2. Just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Or Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or Galatians 2.20. The son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Or 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you hear all of those texts? Every one of them, the love of God is directly connected to the cross. Jesus giving himself up in death for his people. So the greatest demonstration of the love of God ever in history was the cross. That's where you see it most explicitly. Now, why was the cross the supreme demonstration of God's love? Let me give you four thoughts that might help you in this regard. Number one, consider how precious Jesus was to the Father. Jesus was God's only begotten Son. In fact, Colossians 1.13 says that He is the Son of His love. And you remember when God spoke from heaven at the baptism? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So in giving up Jesus to the agonies of the cross, God the Father was giving the most valuable thing that he could, his own son, his only begotten son. Two, consider what God gave Jesus to do. God sent Jesus to become a curse for us. Galatians chapter three. He became a curse on our behalf. He became the scorn and the contempt of men. He experienced the hideous and shameful sufferings of the cross. And God subjected his son to his almighty wrath because Jesus became the propitiation, the wrath, 
bearing sacrifice, the one who averts the wrath of God. God hurled his wrath upon his son and he absorbed it in himself so that very same wrath would not be hurled upon us in hell. So that's what God gave Jesus to do. Thirdly, consider who God gave Jesus for. Who did God give Jesus for? Was it the holy angels? No. They don't need a savior. They're holy. They have no need of a redeemer. Was it for men as his friends? No. Because the Bible says, if while we were enemies, he was delivered over for us all. So Christ was given to us not when we were already his friends, but when we were his enemies. We were holy and deserving and in rebellion against him. And then consider fourthly how freely God gave Jesus. It wasn't that all of mankind was crying out to God, Lord, please send us a savior. We're doomed. We're undone. We're fallen. We're guilty. We're under your wrath. God, send us someone who can take away that situation. Nobody was seeking after God. Nobody was crying out to God for a savior. Nor did we deserve one. God gave Jesus Christ freely, unsought, and unbought. So the love of God is accentuated when we consider how precious Jesus was to God, what God gave him to do, his horrible agonies and sufferings, who God gave him for, his enemies, and how freely he gave him. There's never going to be a greater demonstration of God's love than the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's the third aspect of God's love. It's sacrificial. It's self-sacrificial. Number four, the love of God is distinguishing. That's number four. What do I mean by distinguishing? I mean that the love of God is not the same towards all people. God has made a difference. God has, made, God has distinguished in whom he sets his love upon. His love is not given in the same degree to the same to all people equally all across the world. Now I know that I'm probably, I don't know, <laughs> I, I might be rubbing someone the wrong way just by saying that because I've heard so many times people say, uh, God loves every person exactly the same. And I used to believe that too until I kept reading my Bible over and over and over and I began seeing things in scripture that wouldn't allow me to hold that view any longer. I no longer believe God loves every person in the world in exactly the same way. Now it is true that there is one sense which God loves every creature he has made. He gave them life after all. He provides food and clothing and shelter. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He even sent the world a savior, didn't he? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there is a sense in which God loves every creature he has made. And he has provided salvation for them through Christ. And he offers them through the gospel salvation through his son. That is all true. In fact, if we don't come to Christ, it's not God's fault. It's ours. John 5.40 says, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. And in Romans 10.21, the Bible says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God is offering them salvation through His Son, and they're disobedient and obstinate, and they will not come. 
So God's offer of Christ is real. It's a genuine offer to all people. There's a legitimate sense in which God loves all people with a general love of compassion and pity and benevolence. But there is another sense in which God's love is particular. His love is distinguishing. In other words, God loves his own with a different quality of love than unbelievers. And that only makes sense if you think about your own life. Like, Oleg, you and I are the only husbands in the room at the moment. (laughs) But let's think about it. If we told our wives, hey honey, you know I love you. And you know that I love you exactly the same as I love every other woman in our church. And every other woman on our block. And every other woman in our city. I love you. I love all these women exactly the same. What's going to happen? We'll probably be sleeping on the couch, right? (laughs) Because our wives don't want to hear that they're not special to us. And is it true that God has a bride, but he doesn't, his, his love for his bride is exactly the same as it is for every other person in the world? I don't believe it is. Even you who are parents, think about your love for your own children. Is your love for your children exactly the same as it is for every other kid on your block? Well, if it was, why aren't you taking care of them and feeding them and clothing them and sending them to college, you know, just like you do for your own kids? None of us as parents do that. And I believe that that God doesn't either. What do I mean? Let me just read several scriptures that might help you to understand why I've come to the conclusion that God has a unique and special love for his church, for his elect. Romans 1 verse 7 Paul, in writing to the Romans, says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Now wait a minute. If God loved everybody in Rome exactly the same, why would Paul say, I'm writing to all those who are beloved of God in Rome? There were some that were were objects, recipients of this special love. And who were they? The ones who were called as saints. Those who were called out of the world into the kingdom of Christ to be a holy one, a saint, those are the ones who are beloved of God in Rome, according to Paul. Okay, let's take a more difficult and even controversial one, which we, we dealt with this one. We studied through Romans chapter 9, but we have the example of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, don't we? I'll just read this to you. For though the twins, that's Jacob and Esau inside their mother's womb, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older, that's Esau, will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, if God loves every person exactly the same, how can God say that he loved Jacob and hated Esau? Even if you try to make the word hated simply mean love less, it still means that there is a different quality of love that God exercised toward Jacob than he exercised towards Esau. I think what the text is saying is that God had decided that he was going to do some very important things in the life of Jacob that he was not going to do in the life of Esau. And the difference between what he was going to do for the two was so great that it was like love and hate. Let's look at another one. Colossians 3.12 So as those who have been chosen of God, 
holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now who's Paul writing to? His, God's beloved. Who are they? Those who have been chosen of God, those who are holy. He's not writing to all the world and calling them his beloved. He's writing to those who were chosen of God and holy. In other words, set apart from sin to God to be his covenant child. Or how about 1 Thessalonians 1.4? Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So who is the one who is beloved by God in 1 Thessalonians? The one that God had chosen. The one whom God had made a choice of. Or let's take 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, who are those who are called the beloved of the Lord in this passage? Number one, they're brethren. That's how he identifies them. But we should always give thanks to God for you, who? Brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So do you see the connection between election and love? There is an there is inextricable connection or bond between God's love for his people and his choice of them. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, where he loved Israel because he had said his uh, he had chosen them and set his love on them because he loved them and was fulfilling an oath to them. Jude, the first verse of the book of Jude. This is how Jude starts. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Who are the beloved of God in that passage? Those who are the called those who are kept for Jesus Christ. So you're starting to see when the Bible in the New Testament identifies those whom God loves, it's usually not in a general sense, it's usually in a particular distinguishing sense, and it's usually the church. It's usually those God has called out of the world to be in his kingdom. So let's try to back up a little bit and slow down and see if we can figure out why God's love is distinguishing. And I'm going to offer you my thoughts on this. I want you to think about it and see if you agree or disagree. But I'll just share my thoughts. I, I get my idea from John 17, verse 24. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Why? For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now here Jesus mentions that God the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. Interesting. That phrase before the foundation of the world is the same phrase that comes up in Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6. And what do we read there? That we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So if God loved Jesus before the foundation of the world and he made a decision that he was going to put some of his people into Christ, unite them to Christ before the foundation of the world, then all that love that God is pouring upon His Son, those who are in His Son, they're the recipients of it. It's not that they're any better than anybody else. 
We're all alike, fallen and guilty before God. But if we are in Christ, it's like if you take a paper and put it in my Bible and then take the Bible and throw it in the ocean, well, the, the paper's going in the ocean too. And if we are in Christ and God's love is being poured out upon His Son and you happen to be in the Son, you are the recipient of all that love that comes through God through Jesus Christ. So our union to Christ is, is very important in being a recipient of God's love. Let's look at another facet of God's love. God's love is unfathomable. Now the word unfathomable means incapable of being fully explored or fully understood. It describes a pit or a well that has no bottom to it. It just keeps going down and down and down. It's a bottomless pit, you might say. God's love is so deep that you can't ever get to the bottom. There's always more to be explored when you come to His love. And that's why when we come to Ephesians chapter 3, Pastor Jerome was preaching on this, Paul's praying for them, and he prays that they would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now, isn't that a strange prayer? Lord, help them to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, how can they know something that surpasses knowledge? It, it seems to me, they, maybe they know a little bit more than they did before, but they're never going to know all of it because it surpasses knowledge. So, Maybe they'll look, next week they'll know a little bit more, and next year they'll experience a little bit more of that love, and they're constantly going deeper, but they never get to the bottom of the love of God. In John 17, 23, Jesus said in his prayer to God that God loved believers even as God loved him. Let that sink in. In fact, let me just read it to you, because it's, it's an astounding verse. It's John 17, 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. So think about the kind of love God has for His Son. And then think about the fact that God loves us even as He loved His own Son. Now that's an unfathomable love. I, I can't, I frankly admit, I don't, I don't understand that kind of love and how deep and strong that kind of love must be. But if you're a Christian, you are the recipient of that kind of love. And maybe that's why Paul referred to God's love in Ephesians 2.4 as his great love. It's no ordinary love. It's his great love. Okay, facet of God's love number six. The love of God is invincible. Now, what do we mean by invincible? That was the best word I could find to describe this. It means too powerful to be defeated or overcome. God's love is too powerful to be defeated or overcome by anything. Um, and thank God it is, because we have all kinds of enemies that we face in this life that if God's love were not invincible, we surely would be overcome by these trials and sufferings. And I'm thinking here about Romans chapter 8. I'm thinking here about the, the enemies that the Christian faces during this lifetime. It's Romans 8 verses 35 to 39. 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now Paul's going to give us a whole litany of various enemies that might threaten us from being separated from the love of Christ. Here they come. Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We face these trials, we face these sufferings, these things that distress us. And Paul mentions what they are. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. What's the result when we face those things? What does Paul say? He says we overwhelmingly conquer. It's not like we just barely conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. How do we overwhelmingly conquer? Through him who loved us. That's how we do it. We don't do it in our own strength our own capacity or ability, we do it through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, through Him who loved us. And why are we going to be able to conquer these enemies in this lifetime? Verses 38 and 39 say, it's because there is nothing in all of God's creation that is able to separate you from His love. Now, if there was something in all of God's creation that could separate you, you wouldn't conquer. You would be defeated. But God's love is so strong towards us it is so powerful, it's almighty, it comes with the force of almighty God, that it will not allow you to be conquered by your enemies. It will overcome, it's invincible. It's too powerful to be conquered or defeated by any enemy. So God has set his love on you from eternity past. He will never let you go. Now you may stray. And believers do. We have our ebbs and flows in our faith. Our fa- sometimes we are zealous and sometimes we're not so much and sometimes we get caught in a sin for a time but God's love if he has set his love on you from eternity past you can be sure that he's going to continue to work that love in your life until you conquer those enemies and you stand before him glorious face to face one other facet of God's love it's effectual the love of God is effectual and that means that which is successful in producing the intended effect God has certain effects that he wants to accomplish in the life of his children. So you could, maybe a simpler way of putting it, love of God is effective. Well, effective in doing what? I believe it's effective in bringing about our eternal salvation. God's love is effective in making sure that happens. And I'm going to break this down into three parts because salvation consists of God delivering us Delivering us from the penalty of our sins, from the power of our sins, and from the presence of our sins. And in the New Testament, the Bible says that it's God's love that does all three of those things for us. So number one, God's love delivers us from the penalty of sin. And that comes from Revelation 1 verse 5. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So the the reason God released you from your sins by the blood of Christ was because he loves you. He loves you. He has a covenant love towards you. 
Now you understand covenant, right? It's a marriage. It's an, it's an unbreakable compact or agreement between two parties. And the new covenant that we've entered into is an unconditional agreement or compact that God has entered into on our behalf. So the result of this covenant is that he delivers you from the penalty of sin. And so our justification is a direct result of God's love. Because God has loved you, he justifies you. Secondly, God's love delivers us from the power of sin. How do we know? Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Okay, so Christ loved the church, and what did he do for the church? He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, the word of God. So here we're told that not only does God's love deliver the church from the penalty of her sins, but from the power, because he's at work sanctifying her, changing her, making her holy, delivering her day by day from the effects of sin in the church's life. So our sanctification is a direct result of God's love. Not only our justification. It was bought by Jesus' sacrifice. And thirdly, God's love delivers us from the presence of sin. Where do we get that? The very next verse in Ephesians. Ephesians 5.27. It says, Christ loved the church that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So God's goal for you is to present you to himself in all of your glory without any spot, without any wrinkle, without any blemish, perfect in his sight. And that's a result of his everlasting love for you. Because he's loved you from everlasting, he's going to love you to everlasting, and he's going to present you to himself perfectly glorified in his presence. So our glorification is a direct result of God's love. Our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. All are fruits of God's everlasting love towards his people. So the Bible teaches us that the love of God is uncaused, eternal, sacrificial, distinguishing, unfathomable, invincible, and effectual. Wow. I love that. That's a whole lot to understand about the love of God. So let's just conclude some, with some concluding exhortations and some thoughts. First of all, be amazed that God ever set his love on you. How many millions of people around the globe are nicer and sweeter and kinder than you? <laughs> and yet God set his love on you. Be amazed by it. Be overwhelmed by the love of God towards you. Let it overwhelm you. Let, let it produce a shocking sense of thrill that you are one of God's people. He could have passed you by. I mean, there was nothing in you to attract him to come and select you. He, he could have passed you by, but he didn't. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He brought you into his kingdom. He's showering his love on you. So be amazed by that. When you look at your family members that are not saved, or fellow employees, or neighbors that don't know the Lord, people all around you, wherever you go, be thrilled that God has had mercy on your soul, that he loves you. Number two, be amazed that God doesn't stop loving you. Right? 
How many sins have we committed since becoming a Christian and God hasn't stopped loving us? How many times have we failed the Lord? All right, let's be honest. We do. We fail the Lord. We sin against Him. And yet God has not thrown us away as a bunch of garbage on the side of the road. No, He set His everlasting love on us. We are His treasure for reasons unknown to me. We're His jewel. He loves us with an everlasting love. And He won't let us go. In spite of the fact that our faith and our love to Him ebbs and flows and is stronger and weaker, the Lord is constant, never changing in regard to His love for us. Number three, be amazed that you will never tire of experiencing God's love. If God's love is unfathomable, that means we never hit the bottom. Now everything else we do in this life eventually gets monotonous and boring and tiring. We get weary of it. If you do it enough, eventually you want to do something else, right? But when it comes to the love of God, for all eternity we will be thrilled by understanding and experiencing His rich, great love for us throughout eternity. That we are the objects of His favor and His blessing. Praise God. And then number four is very, very simple. Love God. Has God loved you? Well, then love Him in return. We, we can't initiate this love relationship, but we can respond. And so let's respond to Him. How did Jesus say that someone would love God? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Are you actively seeking to obey the commandments of Jesus? When you read the word and you find a commandment, do you set your heart, okay, Lord, this may be hard. I know it's going to be hard and it's difficult, but I, I determine by your grace, I want to obey this commandment. Give me the power. That's the spirit that we need to have whenever we come to the word, especially when it comes to difficult commandments, real difficult ones. Love, demonstrate your love for God in the way you love other people, in the way that you serve other people in the way that you put God first in your life, in the way that you set aside Him as your top priority, when you spend time with Him and you have, uh, when you listen to His Word and you open up your heart and you pray to Him, set aside that time as top priority in your life as a demonstration that you love the one who loved you first. So those are my thoughts for you this morning. I hope that was a blessing to you. I hope that it will enrich your spiritual life. But let's go to the Lord now and let's just pray. Lord, we realize that there is so much in our lives that is unworthy of your great, beautiful, precious love. We thank you, Lord, that you set your love on us. We thank you, Lord God, that you didn't let us go, didn't pass us by, but you called us by your grace. You were pleased to reveal your Son in us. And we know, Lord, that there was no reason in us for that to happen. And so we we're overwhelmed by your goodness to us. We pray, Lord, that knowing your love would have a profound impact in the way we live out our lives. And so work in us and through us, Lord, that we would be responders to the great love of our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.